Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Amicus, Slate's legal affairs podcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent. And we thought we'd kick things off this week with a little court audio from this past Monday. This is Chief Justice John Roberts sampling Eminem, the rap star, in an argument about what kind of speech falls outside of First Amendment protection because it qualifies as what's known as a true threat. You know, they had to make a nice med for bed for mommy at the bottom of the lake, tie a rope around a rock. This is during the context of a domestic dispute uh, uh, between, uh, you know, a husband and wife. There goes mama splashing in the water, no more fighting with dad, you know, uh, all that stuff. Now, so under your test, could that be prosecuted? No, because if you look at the context of these statements. Because Eminem said it instead of somebody else? This case, called Alanis versus U.S., involves a self-described aspiring rapper who uses very violent language on Facebook in reference to his estranged wife, his children, an elementary school, his former co-workers, and a female FBI agent. Later on in today's podcast, we're going to talk to a scholar of rap music and the law about how rap music has been invoked in courtrooms. But before that, we want to turn to another case argued this week, Young versus United Parcel Service. This case centers on whether UPS had the obligation to accommodate a pregnant driver who wanted to be assigned a lighter lifting load for the duration of her pregnancy. UPS said to Peggy Young, no, we won't give you that accommodation. They put her on unpaid leave. She lost her benefits, including her health benefits, and sued under a statute that says that employers have to accommodate pregnant workers. Joining me to talk about that case is Sam Begenstas, who teaches law at the University of Michigan Law School and argued the case on behalf of Peggy Young. Sam, welcome to Amicus. Thanks for having me. So one thing that's a little bit complicated is the facts of the case here, which really have to do with, it seems to me, the vagaries of what you have to lift to work at UPS. So can you set the table for us and explain to us who your client Peggy Young is and what her job at UPS involved? Uh, sure. So my client Peggy Young was a driver of uh, package trucks at UPS uh, for a number of years. Uh, just the same kind you see in your neighborhood delivering packages to you. She drove an early morning route, so most of the packages she had to deliver were actually letters. They weren't he- they weren't packages at all, much less heavy packages. But she had occasional heavier packages to lift. 
And when she became pregnant, and and she came back to work after becoming pregnant, uh, UPS asked her for a letter from her doctor saying what her restrictions were, and and her doctor said she couldn't lift more than 20 pounds. Uh, And UPS said that she couldn't continue in her job. Uh, and, And what Peggy asked for was to be treated the same way that someone who can't lift more than 20 pounds because of an on-the-job injury or because of an injury that makes them ineligible to drive a truck is entitled to a UPS, which is um, an accommodation that would transfer them to a different job temporarily where they didn't have to lift more than 20 pounds. But UPS said no. So this lawsuit really turns on the language in a handful of words in a statute, right? The Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978. Um, And quite literally starts to turn, as you listen to oral argument, on the clauses on either side of a semicolon in that statute. So let's listen to Elena Kagan uh, deep in the weeds of the semicolon for a minute. All that the inquiry would be is, were you discriminated against because you were pregnant? Yes, I was. No, I wasn't. You don't need any of this other stuff about what the comparator class is. And in fact, you're creating a kind of double redundancy. It's everything past the semicolon is redundant, but then um, moreover, The key words here, which is other persons not so affected but similar in their ability or inability to work, that becomes redundant even within the redundancy. So so we have redundancy nested in redundancy, Sam. This is why people hate lawyers, right? Can you (laughs) help us understand what the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978 is, what these two clauses are, and why the court is fighting about whether the second clause supports, undermines, or amplifies the first clause. Sure, sure. And the PDA is actually a very short statute. It's a sentence with a few clauses in it that was added to Title VII, the Basic Employment Non-Discrimination Law, in 1978. And the first clause says very simply that the terms because of sex or on the basis of sex include because of or on the basis of pregnancy. So, so the first clause of the statute says if you discriminate based on pregnancy, that means you're discriminating based on sex. And so that's illegal. And then there's this semicolon, uh, which you referred to, followed by the word and, and we get to the second clause, which is what we were arguing about in this case. And the second clause says that uh, women affected by pregnancy shall be treated the same as other persons not so affected, but similar in their ability or inability to work. Uh, And so to make it concrete here, what UPS said was that It provides accommodated work to drivers with on-the-job injuries and drivers who have conditions that make them ineligible to drive a truck under, under federal law. And what we said was, well, Peggy Young's pregnancy had the same effect on her ability to work as those conditions had on other drivers who were accommodated. So Peggy Young was entitled to the same treatment. What UPS said was, well, look, if Peggy Young had been injured on the job, we wouldn't have stopped her from getting an accommodation, even though she was pregnant. So we didn't discriminate on the basis of pregnancy. And our point in the case, which Justice Kagan was articulating much better than we did, was that if that's all that the statute means, then that second clause doesn't mean anything. That once you say discrimination based on pregnancy is discrimination based on sex, then that necessarily means that it's discriminatory to say to a pregnant woman with an on-the-job injury, you don't get the same treatment all the other people with on-the-job injuries get. And that the second clause has to mean something else. 
And the something else it means is that basically employers can't discriminate based on the source of a disabling condition. So if they give a certain kind of benefit or accommodation to people with some workplace disabilities, they have to give the same benefit to pregnant workers who are similarly limited in their ability to work. One of the things that was very striking is Justice Scalia using the language of most favored nation status. He uses it here at Oral Argument. The employer would be required to treat the pregnant plaintiff the same as those classes of employees who get accommodations. Most favored nations treatment. Then he uses it here. You, you do assert uh, it's, a, it's a most favored nation provision. And then he uses it here. Most favored nation. So, so you, you're coming down to most favored so, nation. So, and, 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 I think and that makes sense, and, and that's the, easy for my, and I think my colleague to describe. He can write that down in his opinion. And then as you're sort of trying to process what that means, uh, Justice Ginsburg jumps in and says, wait, maybe women don't have the most favored nation status. Maybe they have the least favored nation status. Can you help us? understand, I know that language comes from the Fourth Circuit, but is this a simple binary choice where UPS either has to give women extra special treatment, most favored nation status, or treat them the worst of all? Is that really the choice it comes down to? Well, so I think that the question is, if you have an employer uh, that provides some kind of benefits to some non-pregnant employees, but not others, and then there's a pregnant worker who has a similar restriction as both the people who get the benefits and the people who don't. How does the statute treat the pregnant worker? Does the statute require the employer to treat the pregnant worker the same as the non-pregnant workers who get the better deal? Or is it okay if an employer is treating the pregnant workers the same as the non-pregnant workers who get the worst deal? And you know, what we were saying in, in the oral argument was, look, if you have at least a significant class of workers who aren't pregnant who get a certain kind of benefit or accommodation, then the whole point of this statute is you have to give the same benefit to pregnant workers who are similar in their ability to work because pregnant workers are just as valued as your valued employees. And what UPS was saying was, if there is one worker or one class of workers who doesn't get an accommodation and pregnant workers are treated the same as them, the employer's obligation is fully satisfied. And so, so I think there, there is a degree to which if the first, if our argument is for most favored nation status, then UPS's argument really was for least favored nation status, was for if whatever non-pregnant employee gets the worst deal, that sets the terms of treatment for all pregnant employees. And one of the things that we were trying to say in our oral argument was that's just not a plausible or fair reading of the statute that Congress adopted to overturn a Supreme Court decision and to guarantee that pregnant workers were treated as just as valuable employees as everyone else and to give them first class, not second class and marginal treatment in the workplace. And and I think one of the things that was also striking, Sam, was the extent to which it almost seems as though history is overmastering the argument itself, which is to say, before this case was argued, UPS was already amending its own policy voluntarily. We've got the EEOC changing its policy, nine states now saying, you know what, we can't discriminate against pregnant women. One has the sense that the tides of change have almost overswept 
this case so that in a year or two, when we stop discriminating against pregnant women, this will all have been sort of an interesting theoretical question. Is that your sense of things? Is time just going to fix this as women, more and more women who are pregnant, work to the end of their pregnancies and do heavy lifting jobs? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, to adapt the famous Dr. King quote, you know, it, it is still a long arc of the moral universe. It may be bending in the right direction, but it's taking a while. Um, as you said, it's nine states. UPS didn't change its policy until the Supreme Court granted cert in this case. Um, the EEOC didn't issue its guidance until after the Supreme Court granted cert in this case. So certainly there is movement in the direction of recognizing that pregnant women in the workplace ought to be able to stay in the workplace um, when they're just as able to do the job as other people. But that movement is not very fast. And my last question, Sam, while I have you, is were you struck by the extent to which women's groups across the ideological and political spectrum were on Peggy Young's side? This was not Hobby Lobby. This was not a case about uh, culture wars. This was a case in which uh, a lot of pro-life groups backed your side of the argument saying, if you believe uh, that pregnancy matters, you are for Peggy Young. Was that a surprise to you? Uh, so I, I, it was certainly gratifying. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a case in the Supreme Court uh, where you have every major pro-choice group plus 23 major pro-life groups all lining up on the same side of a women's rights issue. Um, but I think that's the thing about pregnancy discrimination, and, and it's actually been true since 1978 when Congress passed the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. I mean, pregnancy discrimination is something that people who have a variety of different political positions and ideological positions can oppose. Um, you know, if you're pro-choice, uh, you don't like the idea that an employer is putting pressure on an employee saying, you know, you can have your job or you can have your pregnancy. That That is something that interferes with reproductive choice. If you're pro-life, you don't like that an employer is saying to an employee, look, so long as you're pregnant, you can't keep your job. So you know what you have to do if you want to keep your job, right? So whichever position you come from on abortion issues and, and on reproductive choice issues, pregnancy discrimination is one thing that you can agree on. And and uh, there there has been a history of both pro-choice and pro-life groups agreeing on opposing pregnancy discrimination for a long time. And I'm very happy that in our increasingly polarized world, this was a case where those very dispersed and diverse groups could come together again. Sam Begenstoss teaches law at the University of Michigan Law School and represented Peggy Young at the Supreme Court this week. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sam. Thank you very much. Now we're going to turn to another case that was argued this week at the U.S. Supreme Court. Alanis versus the United States. And that's a case that tests whether juries should look at the threats that are posted on Facebook uh, through the lens of whether the speaker intended it as a threat or whether the reasonable listener would have objectively felt they're being threatened. And this seems like it's a pretty esoteric case about First Amendment doctrine. But in a lot of ways, it turns out it's a case about rap. So we thought it would be fun to talk to Sharis Kubrin, who teaches in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at UC Irvine. And she actually was involved in a supplemental brief that was filed in this Alonis case that was trying to educate the court, believe it or not, about, well, rap music. So, Professor Kubrin, welcome to Amicus. Thank you for having me. And 
I think one of the things that is tricky about this case is that the Roberts court is notoriously speech protective, right? We have this court that has protected crush videos as free speech and violent video games and virulent, hateful protesters at funerals. So it looked like this was an easy lift for the court, right? Right. Yeah, that's true. And and do you want to talk for a minute about the facts of Alonis? How does Anthony Alonis, a putative rapping angry ex-husband, find himself at the U.S. Supreme Court this week. (laughs) That's a great title. Um, This is a a case about a man named Alonis who posted original rap lyrics to Facebook under his pseudonym Tone Doogie, which I believe is some combination of his first and last names. And the violent rap lyrics were in reference to his wife and an elementary school and a prior job that he had. And the FBI got tipped off to these uh, messages on Facebook and sent an agent out to check on Alanis. And then he posted about her on Facebook, um, again, in the form of violent rap lyrics. And let's and, be clear yeah. that these are really violent, right? There's these one are, way to love you, bad. a thousand ways to kill you. I'm not going to rest until your body is a mess soaked in blood dying from all the little cuts. So these are pretty... These are, these are really bad, and they're difficult to read, frankly. Um, yes, so that they are quite quite severe. Although, as I argue and we argue in our brief, this is very similar to what you would find Grammy-winning, award-winning rappers saying in their raps. Again, like it or not, this is fairly common among rap music more generally, at least some forms of gangster rap. So let's get the the doctrine out of the way. The, The issue for the court is this pretty narrow exception to the free speech rules, and it is this thing called truth threats. And this doctrine said if something is really, really a threat... Uh, then it's unprotected speech. The question becomes whether this is really, really a threat and whether we're going to measure that using the speaker's subjective intent to scare someone or a reasonable listener's sense that, holy cow, this is a threat. That's the doctrinal question. The question that you address and that's so interesting for the court is whether this implicates both online communication, which we've never tested before, and also whether rap music is somehow especially susceptible to be called low-value speech. Yeah, let me go back and address something you said at the beginning there, which is, so in this case, the jury had been instructed to consider whether a reasonable person would foresee that Ilanis's post would be read by the audience as a serious expression of intention to hurt or kill someone. And Alanis argued that his messages should only be constituted as threats if he actually intended them as such. And here's where rap music comes in. First of all, of course, Alanis claims that he didn't intend them as such, and part of that stems to the fact that he put them in the form of rap lyrics under his alter ego, Tone Doogie, where he claims he was simply blowing off steam, um, you know, the statements were artistic, they were therapeutic, he was exercising his poetic license, just like his favorite rapper Eminem does, and that he also claims that his postings had references to art and First Amendment rights, etc. Um, so all of that is important context, we argue, that needs to be taken into consideration when trying to determine the intent of the threats. And I think it's important 
early on to establish that even though the court has been awfully receptive to some very violent and ugly speech, like I said, crush videos and hate speech from funeral protesters, one of the things that comes out early and often in this case is that some of the justices think this speech is simply of no value. So let's play a little bit of Justice Antonin Scalia in a colloquy at oral argument with John Elwood, who is representing uh, Mr. Alanis. And let's listen to what Justice Scalia has to say about the value of the speech at issue. And this is valuable First Amendment language that you think has to be protected. Uh, I think that there is. Uh, the, the, the kind of things that, uh, that, that, that were quoted earlier? About. I think that the, when you're doing it as a category, yes, this is valuable language, because virtually any language that uses forceful rhetoric could be penalized, like, as they say, the blood of tyrants, uh, quote. Or no, it, it has to reasonably put somebody in fear. That's, that's all the government's insisting on. Exactly, which is a very low standard that uh, when maybe a low standard, but it, I, 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 it, to my mind, it doesn't eliminate a whole lot of valuable speech. Well, oh, for example, another, another example, and I would speech. like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. So, so let's talk a little bit about Justice Scalia, who admittedly is a big fan of opera and maybe mm-hmm. less of a fan of Eminem, his notion that there's just not a lot of value to yeah. Alanis' speech. This is, this is one of the reasons why we wanted to write the brief, because we feel that, that the justices probably don't have a lot of understanding about rap music, let alone gangster rap. And our goal was to describe the interpretive problems of meaning and understanding of rap lyrics, that unless the defendant speaker's subjective intent is taken into account, can cause people, particularly people who hold negative stereotypes about rap, uh, as Scalia might, to incorrectly interpret them as a threat of violence or unlawful conduct. And then we also wanted to highlight the artistic and political aspects of rap music that often are lost amidst the negative stereotypes that surround it. So in the brief, we talk a little bit about where hip-hop and rap came from, what it was born from, uh, how it was intended originally as a way to combat gangs and crimes, um, and as a way for young people to get out of the hood, so to speak, uh, away from crime. Um, so we wanted to provide that important context so that rap just wasn't seen as it's generally portrayed in the media as this, you know, useless, violent rhetoric. You have a nice line in your brief, in this uh, supplemental brief, where you say, uh, quoting rapper Chuck D of Public Enemy, that rap is, quote, CNN for black America, Mm -hmm. and also quoting Queen Latifah, who has compared rap to, quote, a newspaper that people read with their ears. So this is a way of saying that this is not just no value speech. This is quintessentially valuable political speech. It can be. Yes, it can be. And also, the other important component of that is that a lot of even the most violent lyrics that you hear in rap music, a lot of that is hyperbole. (laughs) A lot of that is overstatement. I mean, rappers like to fashion characters, right? I mean, if you look at all the major rappers in the 90s and 2000s, that, that, you know, did gangster rap, they're saying all kinds of violent, crazy scenarios. I mean, if, if 1% of that was true, this country would be in a, in a horrible situation. So that's part of the genre. That's a form of artistic expression in gangster rap that's part and parcel, just like with horror movies. When you go to see horror movies, you expect certain elements to be there. It's the same thing for gangster rap. But if you don't understand gangster rap and understand that this is more than just autobiographical statements or true threats, you understand that it's 
a form of artistic expression, you realize, oh, these aren't necessarily true statements. And you've done an enormous amount of empirical research and thinking about literally tens and tens of cases where rap lyrics are in fact used as autobiographical yes. statements. Can yes. you talk about that a little bit? Yes, and this is in part what, what motivated us to do this amicus brief as well. Is my co-author on all of this, Eric Nielsen, and I um, started realizing that the number of cases where rap lyrics are being used as evidence in criminal trials is just exploding across the country. I mean, pretty much we've identified several hundred cases where either individual aspiring artists are being charged with crimes and then having their rap lyrics come in as evidence, often the only evidence, used to show motive or intent with respect to the charge, or rap artists are having their lyrics be viewed as so threatening and dangerous that the lyrics themselves are constituting the crime and the rappers are being charged with making terrorist threats. And Eric and I have discovered that this is only happening with rap music. There is no other form of artistic expression that is being treated this way in the courts. So if you say, for instance, I shot the sheriff, nobody thinks that's an admission. Right. There's and those there's the typical examples of I shot the sheriff or I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Those are the common ones. But and it goes beyond music. If you think about all of the different forms of media that are out there that have violent expressions in them, in no other cases are you seeing defendant authored writings or lyrics or expressions being used in court except in the case of rap. So we thought we'd play for you another little exchange that goes between the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who, by the way, proves to be not just rap savvy, but a big rap defender at this yes. oral argument. That was that was quite a surprise, I think, for everybody. I think for you think you know a guy, and then he's <laughs> citing Eminem uh, on the record. But here's an exchange he had uh, with Michael Dreben from the Justice Department, who was defending the uh, standard under which Al- Alanis was convicted. Here's a back and forth between the two of them about context. That does subject the prosecution, the lyrics that a lot of rap artists use. No, not at all, Mr. Chief Justice, because in the context of those statements, it's pretty clear that the purpose of the communication is entertainment. People seek out rap artists because they are seeking some form of entertainment. And that is a So how do you start out if you want to be a rap artist? Your first communication, you can't say, I'm an artist, right? I I think that you have perfect freedom to engage in rap artistry. What you don't have perfect freedom to do is to make statements that are uh, uh, like the ones in this case, where after the individual receives a protection from abuse order from a court, which was based on Facebook posts that his wife took as threatening, he comes out with a post and says, fold up that PFA and put it in your pocket. Will it stop a bullet? He knows that his wife is reading these posts. He knows that his posts, despite the fact that they're in the guise of rap music, have instilled fear in her. And he goes out and he ramps up and escalates the threatening character of the statements. So a couple of questions. One Mm -hmm. is, uh, how much stock do you put in that interesting back and forth where the chief says, how does one start out being a rapper? I mean, I think it's interesting because one of the things that Elonis did was have a, a very explicit disclaimer about what he called his fictitious lyrics on Facebook. And it said something, and this was also in the oral argument, something like, all content posted to this is strictly for entertainment purposes only. 
And, and therapeutic, I guess, purpose is one of the claims that he makes as he was listening to a lot of rap. He was sad. This was a safe and healthy way for him to work out his troubles. Exactly. This is what Eminem, I mean, again, he's a big fan of Eminem. And if you listen to Eminem's lyrics, and Eminem's won something like 13 you know, Grammys, um, has very similar kinds of lyrics where he lashes out at his ex-wife, um, you know, people in his life. It's very therapeutic. I, I wonder if you could also address, because the second part of that exchange involves Michael Dreben saying he was ramping up, you know, mm-hmm. even after his wife, objectively terrified at that point, gets a restraining order. He's threatening, you know, writing lyrics suggesting that, you know, is that going to protect you from my bullet? Yeah. Uh, and it raises this question that I think undergirds a lot of this case, which is what do we do? when women are really terrified, where this is being experienced as a threat. And I wonder, I mean, you've acted as an expert witness in these cases. You've thought about this a lot. Is there an easy fix for this or are women just going to live in fear? No, that's a really fair question. And, uh, you know, this case is a bit different. I have to be honest. This case is a bit different from the hundreds of cases that Eric Nielsen and I have dealt with um, when we've testified in these cases where rap lyrics have been used. Because in most of the cases that we're aware of, what you get is an individual rapping making no specific mention of people, speaking very broadly and generally about some sort of violent claims, and then the prosecutor trying to make the connection back to the facts of the case. And often there's very little correspondence, if any, between the rapper's lyrics uh, in some cases, which were written years before the case at hand and the facts of the case. Here you have, like you said, this direct back and forth and this what appears to be ratcheting up. That goes, for me, back to what constitutes a true threat. Um, and I, I guess I'm not, I'm not quite sure how the court will decide that. I just want to ask you one last question while I have you, which is, to your knowledge, is this the first time that Eminem is cited at an oral argument uh, <laughs> in your experience, or does Eminem show up fairly often? Uh, oh, he's in almost every one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is the first time the justices <laughs> have mentioned Eminem, and I'm pretty sure this is the first brief as we've been told, where F-bombs are dropped all the time. In, in, the, in the brief, we mention a few rap songs. We talk about their titles. And, you know, we have to drop an F-bomb in there. So that's been played up in the media as well. So, yes, in every way, shape, and form, this brief and this case is, is a bit different from the normal routine of the mill cases they get. Well, we really appreciate you joining us on Amicus today. Sharis Kubrin teaches at UC Irvine and was part of a brief in the Alanis case that raised special, special issues uh, as pertaining to rap music and threats. Thank you, Sharis, for joining us. Thank you. And that is it for this episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing on this show, please help us out by leaving a review of the show on our iTunes page. This will help other people discover us. Just search for Amicus in the iTunes store or find us at slate.com slash podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show, what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of in upcoming episodes. You can always reach us at amicus at slate.com. That's amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. We're reading them. We're responding as fast as we can. We love your support. Thank you to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. 
Our producer is Tony Field, the managing producer is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we will be back with you soon for the next edition of Amicus. If you like what you just heard, spend a little more time with Slate. Our network is home to some of the most popular, award-winning, and long-running podcasts out there. Discover new ways to think about everything you love. Politics, pop culture, language, parenting, sports, the Supreme Court, money, and women's issues. Plus, there's our daily show, The Gist, the most entertaining evening news podcast around. Check us out in the iTunes store at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.